Welcome to everyone. Uh, welcome to the Capital Link Shipping Podcast Series. I'm Nicholas Bornolis, President of Capital Link, and uh, Capital Link is hosting on a regular basis uh, podcasts on critical topics of the industry, of the maritime industry, and um, the purpose of our podcasts is to provide um, educational and uh, uh, informational content to uh, a wider audience of investors and industry participants. Today's uh, podcast uh, is uh, featuring uh, Marco Fiori, who is the CEO of the Milan-listed D'Amico International Shipping Company, uh, a product tanker company, a global player in the market, and Mr. James Yang, analyst at Maxim, uh, and uh, the two of them will be discussing on the prospects uh, and outlook of the tanker sector and D'Amico in, uh, uh, in particular. Uh, we will also discuss the trends and developments uh, regarding the wider tanker sector, the compliance with uh, the environmental regulations of uh, the IMO, and a lot of other topics of contemporary uh, and critical interest for the industry. And without any further delay, I will hand the floor over to uh, Marco and to James. So thank you to everybody for being with us. Uh, please go ahead. Thank you, Nicholas, for the Great. introduction. Yeah. Yeah, Hi, James. You, How are you doing? Good. Hey, Marco. How's it going? Good. Yeah, I just want to thank Nicholas and the Capital Link team again for hosting this podcast. And, you know, thank you again, Marco, for uh, participating. So... You know, let's just let's just begin. Um, so I'd like to start with the IMO 2020 rule. And, you know, just as a recap for our listeners, uh, the International Maritime Organization, which is a specialized agency of the United Nations, has passed regulations to limit the output of sulfur content from 3.5% to 0.5%, which begins on January 1st, 2020. Um, and this rule extends beyond just the emission control areas uh, through all the oceans globally. And so I think a lot of folks are interested in how the IMO 2020 rule is going to affect shipping. And, you know, Marco, most of the story has been around the installation of scrubbers or with owners burning, you know, more expensive low-sulfur diesel or MGO. So, you know, tell us, you know, what, what do you think, think the sw- okay. Yeah, what do you think the fleet is going to do? Look, uh, I do not know what's going to happen like most of the people. One sure thing that's going to happen, that the rule won't be postponed, like some people were thinking. So the, real, the rule is going to be implemented, that's for sure, or almost for sure. Uh, the second thing is that uh, I can give you a series of considerations of, uh, of, uh, of what I believe will be happening. First of all, uh, our position as of D'Amico, uh, we have most of our ships are modern, uh, they are smaller size, uh, we have uh, six seller ones to be delivered, uh, actually three being delivered, uh, and uh, actually two delivered and four still to be delivered, two this year and two next year, and out of these six, we will have only one with scrubbers, uh, just uh, as a test to see it's working. So we didn't go full length uh, to having them all rolled, so the ones had to be delivered with all with scrubbers. Uh, my personal opinion is that uh, this 
uh, will entail some, uh, you know, probably, probably I think we can see more what's going to bring than the, how, what's going to, what's going to happen. For sure it's going to bring a stronger market because I think the logistics of distributing new products from uh, more modern refineries will be taking off a lot of tonnage. So there is one that's going to be more tonnage, more ton miles. I think this is one thing that's going to happen. Second thing that's going to happen, I think that uh, having to burn more expensive fuels, you have two effects. Effect number one, that you have the eco ships, that if you remember the story started in 2011, we had very high bunker prices, and uh, the eco story was basing itself very much. I remember that eco was not for economical, but for ecologic. But you know, there's also an economical factor to be uh, yeah. to be seen into this. Uh, ships who burn less in those days, they were bunkers were expensive, so there was a big support on the eco story. Then we went back to the oil in the 40s, the, the 50s. Bunker prices came off, and this a little bit faded off the radar screen. I think for sure now going back into the effect of burning more expensive fuel at uh, 0.5, uh, I think the echo story is back in the forefront. So this is going to be positive for ship valuations and also for uh, chartering rates for people who have uh, an echo fleet, like we have a lot of them. Uh, second thing, who's not echo, what they can do? They can do some slow steaming. And slow steaming to use less, uh, less bunker will uh, have a fallout of uh, uh, increasing uh, the, the ton mile because there's going to be more ships at sea and less being able to trade. So there is a lot of factors that are pointing out to the, to the, to the result. The rates, this should be a powerful uh, rate booster. If we talk about well, so, scrub, yep. Yeah, well, let me just ask you a question about the slow steaming. So I know the vessels each have a recommended uh, or designed speed. Yeah. Um, do you think that slow steaming on the product tanker side would, would make up the effect of the spread between the low sulfur diesel and the bunker fuel? Uh, well, for sure, I don't know if it's affecting the spread, but for sure you're spending less on your bunker, so that's always a positive. Okay. And just as a reminder to our listeners, how many uh, tons of uh, bunker fuel do, does an MR tanker burn? Look, uh, a, non-echo, a non-echo ship is about 2830, and echo you talk about 2324. Okay, great. So on an MR, huh? So you know, with the with the increase in costs, there, there's um, you know, whether you install scrubbers or you burn the more expensive marine gas oils, you know, there is a there is an added cost to that. So if if a ship owner chooses not to install scrubbers. Who's going to bear the cost of the increased fuel? Yeah, you know, this, this is the question. This kind of, in this moment, a little bit of a tug of war. Because uh, let's mm. not also forget that um, 
for refineries, uh, converting into low sulfur fuels, uh, it is a kind of, uh, of an expensive proposition. You know, you talk from uh, yeah. several hundred millions per refinery, you know, to, to, to adapt to this. Uh, then uh, for owners, uh, they don't want to be the part uh, bearing the burden. So I think a little bit is going to be spread around, uh, and I hope that a lot of the, this cost will be, uh, will be taken by the charters, which probably they'll, they'll take ships on charter and say, okay, now let's slow steam, at least we reduce our uh, cost of uh, moving from point A to point B. But that doing will uh, create more inefficiencies, and therefore they could be very positive for the market. Hmm. But, you know, currently, with, if you look at the supply-demand balance right now on the product tanker side, hmm. you know, there, there, there is an oversupply of vessels. I think we can agree on that. Um, yeah. If this market kind of continues with a slight oversupply of vessels, well, do you believe owners will have the, will have the power to kind of push these costs onto the charters? Or do you think charters will push back even stronger? Well, look, I think, I think for sure on the echo ship, I think there is no doubt that the ships will be going at a premium because that's a fact. Uh, on the non-echo ship, I think it's going to be very much uh, how you say the balance of, of things uh, uh, develops. There is an oversupply of ships. I think on the MR side, there's 1,500 ships in the market, more or less. Uh, Deliveries and orders are still at a very reasonable level. Uh, I think the market, the deliveries have been growing in the two point uh, uh, high two percent. You know, when you have an increase of uh, transported products of four percent per annum in average in the last ten fifteen years. So I think there is a positive development in this. Uh, scrapping is starting to take uh, to take uh, to, to set in. We've seen uh, that on. Uh, the first quarter of this year, uh, the scrapping on the MRs and LRs, so just the first quarter, is a little bit more than 50% of everything that's been scrapped last year. So you can see a little bit more of activity there, also stimulated by the fact that uh, scrapping uh, were uh, above $400 per ton. So that's also a decent price for, uh, for, uh, for ships. Uh, I think, I think this, is, this is the question. And, and the honest answer, I do not know how this is going to evolve, uh, James. I can only tell you another thing about scrappers. <laughs> Uh, we are taking a. You don't, have a you don't have a crystal ball you can look into. Yeah, uh, I wish I had. It's very cloudy these days. Probably <laughs> in that crystal ball will be burning ten percent knocks and socks because it's all fuzz inside of that <laughs> crystal ball. Uh, the one thing that for sure is also going to happen is that all this activity is going to create a lot of logistical problems. Just imagine that you have to double the storage on shore because where you've been keeping 3.5% what we burn today you cannot be storing 0.5 so you have to distribute all this low sulfur product all over the world and then store it also for ships will be coming now uh, I think there's two main, two main groups to be made you have the ships, the bigger ships, you know, that mainly are on certain routes, you know, the, the ferries, 
the container ships, where I think makes a lot of sense to install scrubbers. First of all, they burn a lot of fuel, especially the container ships, uh, the bigger ships, the VLs. Uh, for sure, there's going to be more interest in putting scrubbers. On the other hand, the smaller ships, first, there is a space issue, and retrofitting is expensive. And third, there's not that much economy. Personally, I think that this scrubber uh, situation probably will be lasting the big delta between the 0.5 and the heavy fuel will be lasting mm. for a limited period of time. Then this arbitrage will close, uh, and a lot of people will be carrying some expensive equipment which won't be necessary. Uh, mm. Also because, you know, a solution has to be found. Look at the numbers. I think there is about 90,000 ships in the world. And of these, probably for 2020, it's going to be four or 5,000 ships equipped, and most of them are the big container ships, uh, and everybody else, what they're going to do. So you'll have to find a reasonable solution for everybody else. The numbers are staggering, you know. It's not that uh, yeah. it's 90% compliant by 2020. By 2020, 95% is not compliant, you know, and you have probably less than that. So a solution has to be found. And uh, I think uh, I think the solution will be done a lot by availability of low sulfur fuels uh, which will have to be distributed and stored all over the world. Now, uh, what we hear from major oil companies is that they're very advanced in the supply of this fuel and most of them feel very comfortable to be able to uh, have this kind of output of the refineries. But as I say, then one thing is having it available at the refinery, another thing is to have it distributed, especially for yeah. a Mars that go everywhere in the world uh, has to be distributed in every port of the world. And that same port uh, will need to have some heavy fuel for the ships that will have installed scrubbers uh, because they yeah. need heavy fuel because otherwise they don't achieve the savings and the reason why they put the scrubber on. So you understand it? it's, it's a very complicated issue. It's like having a double redundancy for everybody else. You know? <laughs> well, so that's interesting. So let's say... The adoption of scrubbers is pretty minimal by 2020. Do you think this is an opportunity for increased rates and utilization? I think, I think yeah, because there's going to be this slow steaming, and then there's going to be a lot of ships busy in transporting these kinds of products everywhere in the world. Yeah. So there's going to be a new product to be distributed in a very capillary way all over the world. And it's not, uh, James, let me, let me, let me, let me, uh, put it a little bit across the teeth. It's not, let's say, you know, scrubbers, there's few thousand scrubbers in the world because there's not the manufacturing capacity of, of the scrubbers. So, so, you know, one way or another, there's not enough scrubbers to be installed. Also, if they started everybody producing scrubbers today and putting them on, there's not that many scrubbers available in the market. So, you know, so for sure. Then you go into the fact that you have open loop, closed loop scrubbers. Open loop are the ones that uh, neutralize uh, the excess of sulfur with seawater that then gets recycled and put back at sea. But these kind yeah. of scrubbers cannot be used within the U.S. coast uh, limits. So the, so the moment you get close to the United States, you have to switch to low sulfur fuel. Because yeah. open loop, which is the most common uh, scrubber today, won't be able to be utilized within the, the coastal limits of the United States. 
closed loop scrubbers, there you get in a very complicated situation. You have to have caustic soda on board or some kind of neutralizer. So you get, then you need to have slops where to put the residue of this chemical reaction. So it becomes a much more complicated thing. That's why the majority of scrubbers that you see today made are open loop scrubbers. But this doesn't mean that you'll be able to sail with those scrubbers uh, uh, next to the coast. That will mean that you have to still to switch. So ships will have to have uh, dual tanks. We need to have tanks for uh, below 0.5. Also, the ships who have open loop scrubbers will need to have uh, 0.5 uh, tanks for using them in port operation next to the coast operation. Mm-hmm. So it becomes everything becomes more complicated. And the more it gets complicated things, the more they get inefficient. And the more they get inefficient, the better it is for shipping. This normally it is a fact, you know. That, that, yeah, that's usually, that holds true usually. So let me ask you a question. Do you think with all these um, regulations changing and with the possible new trade routes and utilization points for the product tanker sector, do you see the handy-sized product tankers uh, like the MR1s and smaller, being replaced by the MR2s and the LR1s start to replace some of the MR2 routes? Look, uh, if I told you, uh, my personal opinion would be a little bit biased. Our opinion, <laughs> as you know, we have some uh, MR1s, we have a lot of MR2s, and we're starting to having some LR1s. Why yeah. did we build LR1s? Mainly for two reasons. Reason number one, because we saw that across the sector, the people who charter MR1s are also charters of MR2s and also charters of LR1s. So we would like to be a kind of a one-stop shop for everybody, uh, for all these people, uh, for all our customers. So they come to us and we can provide them what, 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 what they need. Second reason, and this is a more important looking, you know, in the, in the famous, uh, what we discussed, the fuzzy crystal ball, I personally believe that, that the world, that bigger ships for economies of scale have always been pushing out of the market smaller ships. You've seen that sizes have always been growing because you have bigger economies of scale. So I think that in the future, probably you have less and less MR1s. They're going to be reduced to very few places. They're already a ship that once MR1s, you were using them in mainly in three areas, uh, North, uh, North Europe, MED, and the Caribbeans. In the Caribbeans today, you see most of them are MRs, so they've been pushed out of that market. Now uh, there is still Northern Europe and there is still the Mediterranean, but I think that slowly MR2s will be replacing MR1s as a trading ship. Where an MR2 goes normally, an MR1 goes normally goes also an MR2. With the exception that being a lighter ship, if you do a lot of port calls, the cost of an MR1 is lower than the cost of an MR2 because ports normally they charge you on, uh, on that weight. So normally this was the big advantage. If you do a lot of poor calls, an MR1 has a cost advantage on this. But, you know, if you can carry more and you can make it efficient, probably this can, uh, can supplant this, uh, this, uh, this kind of advantage. And uh, as we say, MR2 supplanting, uh, taking over the MR1s, LR1s yeah. probably will become more of a trading ship. Uh, I'm not talking about LR2s because they become a little bit too big. But normally Panamax can go a little bit uh, in a lot of ports. So I think that there's going to be 
a little bit of an upshift that the MR2s are going to take the MR1s and the LR1s are going to take over the MR2s a little bit. So this will okay. be a little bit uh, our way of thinking. Then if we're right or wrong, I think time will tell, uh, James. I don't know. This, uh, so, this, so this will finally be that substitution effect everybody's been waiting for on the product anchor side. Yeah. You know, uh, oh, so let me ask you a question. Um, as a matter of fact, you see that MR, yeah. MR1s, very few of them have been built. And, you know, and I don't think that that's a fact, you know, because people are all stupid. If everybody does the same thing, probably people know something that you don't know, you know. So I think uh, markets are pretty good, uh, uh, efficient predictor of, uh, of a future market, you know. Okay. And so let me ask you about the rationale behind the LO1 order. So it seems MR2s make better economic sense um, on a return basis compared to an LR1. Yeah. Have you seen that as the case as well? Look, so far I can tell you that in this kind of market, there is also another thing that we, uh, we didn't discuss. That normally the bigger is the ship, the bigger is the volatility of that ship uh, mm -hmm. on, on rates. A Panamax is much less volatile than... Uh, than uh, an Aframax, you know, so you go, you go, bigger is the ship, there's more volatility. For sure this year, rates on LR1 and LR2s often have been below those of MR2s. So you have a smaller ship that costs less that's outperforming the bigger ships. But, you know, but okay. then when the market turns around, LR1s, LR2s, other ships also make $30,000 a day. When the MR2 get capped at uh, 20000 22000 21000 you know, so you have bigger volatility in that. You have a substitution effect where at a certain point when the market is really going, arbitrage are open, you see people wanting bigger ships to take uh, more advantage of the box. So as far as we're concerned, this year, you're totally right, this year and last year, LR1s uh, have been uh, underperforming on MR2s. Okay. All right. So, you know, let's just switch gears a little bit to the financing side of the equation. So we all know a lot of the traditional shipping lenders have left the market, and recently there's been an increase in sale and leaseback transactions, uh, sure. specifically with the Chinese leasing firms. and. Traditionally, sale and leasebacks were mostly available to long-term charter vessels, mm -hmm. right? But what we've seen now is a lot, a large number of spot trading vessels uh, utilizing the sale and leaseback scheme. So, you, I, I know, you, I know uh, your firm has uh, completed a sale and leaseback. Can you kind of walk us through the rationale behind this? And well, the rationality you know, is very, in my opinion, is kind of simple. If you are a believer in a stronger market looking forward, let's start, sorry, one step backward. Normally what happens, you would have liquidity in the secondary market. Liquidity for this lack, especially in older ships, second-hand ships, has been drying up very fast. So if you had to sell some older ships, there would be very few buyers and far apart. Uh, so this has been a lack of liquidity in these kind of ships. Then you have the need of uh, uh, ending the life of some ships, uh, passing them to other owners, uh, because you're not a, we treat ships in the 15, 16 years of age, probably 17 max, but we want to keep the first part of the life of the ship. So you get to the point where you have to uh, dispose of one ship. There's no secondary market. What are you left with? With sale and leaseback. So on older ships, 
Normally what we've been doing is sail and charter back for three, four, five years. We bring them at 17 years. The owner who's buying it is amortizing it down, and then he'll be trading the ship on other markets where they're not competing. For example, with us, for example, the veg oil market, which is a limited competition with us, or other markets where we are not very, 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 very active. Uh, so this is one way of getting rid of them. The newer ships, uh, naturally you need also sometimes to sell some new ship for your cash flow, uh, for, for your financial position, uh, just to create a little bit longer uh, runway. Newer ships, if you are a believer in the market, what can it be better than to sell a ship Recharter it back, bareboat it back for 10 years, where you have a final uh, purchase obligation at very much depreciated levels. And during yeah. these 10 years, you can have an option to buy. I'm a believer that in these 10 years, being a cyclical market, there's going to be the one moment where you'll be able to repurchase these ships at a very attractive price and you bring them back in the fleet. So what's kind of a, a, an enhanced collateral for, uh, for borrowing at, uh, in, certain, uh, in certain situations. Now, you have mainly two types of uh, actors in the sale and leaseback market. You have mainly the Chinese, Chinese which are very interested in big-scale transactions, like the one that Scorpio mm. did. They normally want to do 10 ships at a time. Mm. Uh, they normally would do it on, uh, on some kind of seller's credit, which they finance yeah. to 70 80% of the value of the ships. And then you have the Japanese. But the Japanese, you need to have an entry into that market, a reputation, a name, and being doing working there. We have all of the above, and we've been doing a certain transaction with the Japanese at 100% financing, and a cost of funding that's around 6%. So you understand, 100% financing at 6% with purchase options all along the, the, the road is not the worst thing that can happen to you in your life. I think it's a way you keep control of the ship, remains in your fleet, you keep trading it, and then you have always an option to repurchase the ship for the next 10 years. So I think these are the factors that probably uh, brought us to, uh, to the sale and, uh, and bareboat back, or mainly I'm talking of newer ships, so it would be sale and bareboat back, that we've been yeah. doing. The interesting thing is that we started something like one year ago, and uh, was kind of, were kind of the, the, odd, uh, the oddball player in, uh, in this game. And now instead, as you said, a lot of people are doing it because it's a very efficient way of doing it. Going back to banks. Going back to banks, I think that here also you are creating a two-tier market. You have certain owners, if we have projects, I think probably we could be counting on more financing that we would need because the banks are concentrating more on reliable customers, customers with a reputation, and uh, they can afford to do so because there's less of them, there is less competition, so they want to, do, they want to have these names on board. I always compare this to like as a shrinking pie, but then the slices of this pie are getting bigger and bigger. So for who's a player, you have probably a bigger slice of a shrunk pie, but it's still a big slice, you know, because yeah. the historical banks are still in the game. You have the, the French banks, the Dutch banks, the, the Scandinavian banks, all of these are in, in the game. And you start to see also new players coming in. You start seeing the Japanese bank, the regional banks, smaller Japanese banks, who are very eager 
to increase their exposure in shipping. They're not afraid. They feel they understand it. And they're very willing to increase their exposure. So, you know, I'm not saying that one goes out, one comes in. But, you know, mm. there is also a certain number of inflow of new players also in the banking segment. But for sure, as you said, in, uh, in absolute terms, uh, the number of banks who are financing shipping are, uh, are, uh, are shrinking. And I think it's particularly felt this effect by marginal, uh, historically second-hand buyers of tonnage, which they find very difficult to secure financing in this market. And all of this indirectly is creating problems a little bit to us because it's like a, a pipeline where all of a sudden there is a block, you know, that that was our pipeline, these second-hand buyers, and these all of a sudden, they're, they're scarcer and scarcer in the market. So, you know, we had also to think a little bit and retool ourselves around this issue. Well, so let me ask you a question. So if, if there are a large number of scrapping that occurs across all the sectors in shipping ahead mm-hmm. of the 2020 regulations, there, there will be a need for replacement vessels as well. Yeah. And do you think there's enough liquidity in the traditional shipping lenders to service these new vessels, or do you think there will be more sale and leaseback type transactions with the with the Chinese and the Japanese. I, th- I think that the Chinese uh, sailing this back will be playing a role, but also let's not forget that you'll have some historical players like uh, the sovereign banks, uh, uh, the export-import banks, who for large transactions are there to provide uh, some kind of, uh, of financing. The only difference from today to yesterday is that yesterday a lot of these banks for issuing refundment guarantees, they were very much accommodating yards because uh, they don't want to uh, slow them down. It's a big source of employment. Uh, there is also a big social issue in some of these countries about all these yard workers. So these banks were, the, 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 all the, the export-import banks were very helpful in securing uh, refundment guarantees and things like that. After all the problems have been lately and the yards, I don't think that these uh, banks are going to be funding uh, losing projects. Projects are just, you know, it's just for turnover. <laughs> Over, but at the end yeah. of the day, they don't make much sense. And you see this, I think, the evidence of this is the fact that today, where you have yards that are shrinking, so in theory they should have bigger market share, the prices of ships, here you had a little bit of, uh, in the dry cargo, you had a collapse in rates, but you had also a big collapse in, uh, in, in uh, new building prices in the, in the past crisis. On the tanker side, today, more or less, prices of new buildings are very similar to what they were uh, four or five years ago. So you have a cheap, very cheap uh, TC market, but still an expensive uh, new building market. Uh, you know, the, today to build an MR, depending where you go, a tier three ship, you need uh, 35, 36 million, tier two, probably 33, 34, which is not very different from uh, from the prices that you had three, four years ago. So yeah. it's, it's, it's kind well, of Well, is the 35 uh, a tier three uh, non-scrubber, non-bows war treatment? Yep. Or is that just a... Uh, yeah. Let's see, non-scrubber, scrubber-ready uh, with ballast water treatment plants. But, you know, ballast water, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about six, $700,000. It's not a big uh, big item anymore. Yeah. Uh, 
I think like everything, you have a big uh, a big effect that as technology moves forward, a lot of these things become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. You know, I don't know if you remember flat screen TVs uh, 20 years ago. You know, uh, now <laughs> now you know they're a dime a dozen. You know, so you know, so I exactly. Think, uh, so you have a big uh, technology. Really, is a big uh, is a big factor in, uh, in making things more affordable. Okay. So you know, listen. I have one more question, I guess, on the outlook since you brought up technology. Do you think that the shipping sector will switch fuels from you know, let's say, bunker marine gas oils to LNG or LPG within the next ten years? Look, uh, my personal opinion on this, I think there is a chance, but depends a lot on the type of the ship. On smaller ships, uh, the space of being adapted, for example, in Mars and Handys, putting tanks for LNG, it is a complicated issue because uh, you, need, uh, you need a lot of space. Uh, if we're talking about container ships, VLs, uh, uh, big ships, uh, I think there is, there, is a, there is a very strong possibility of that happening. So it's very much in the size, which is also the fact of the scrubbers. You know, smaller ships, it's more difficult to make them scrubber ready. Uh, yeah. Retooling, refitting, it's more complicated because the spaces, you know, are not there. So, you know, I think, uh, I think it's very much uh, uh, depending on the size of the ship. Okay. And what about electric ships? Do you think we will see electric ships in our lifetime? You're asking somebody who's carrying oil, you know. That's Uh, well, we know you're given unbiased answers. So. Yeah. Well, look, uh, I think that today the technology is not there, not for the electricity, but for the fact of the battery space. I think that's also more, uh, but, you know, if you have to have an electric ship and then you have to take a lot of space for the batteries and there's no, there's much less cargo intake, that would not make it a viable proposition. So I think that uh, today the technology is still not there, I think, uh, on, on electric ships. All right. Well, thank you for that, Mark. I'm sure that was unbiased. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> so I just want to thank you again for joining us for this uh, for this podcast. Uh, you gave some great insight into well, uh, coming regulations and also the financing side of the and, equation. Uh, and and please look, whoever has some ideas, let me know because uh, the crystal ball is very fuzzy <laughs> at this moment. So, you know, I think we all love to get some input. <laughs> James, thank you very much. And Nicola, thank you also. You always uh, organize great events. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thank you to both of you. It, it's been very, very interesting. And Marco, as always, you've been spot on. And uh, James, thank you for the uh, great uh, direction of the discussion. Thank you very much. And I'll see you, you for, uh, see in uh, mid-June. Absolutely. Uh, bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.